0: Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rtc.church. Man, I love that. You can go ahead and have a seat if you will, but if you're like me and there's a part of me that's like, man, I just want to keep... Standing and celebrating what God is doing this morning. Um, Truly, Baptism Sundays are like my absolute uh, favorite Sunday as a church. Every time we get to do this, it's just a reminder of uh, the goodness and the mercy of God. It's just such a wonderful day. Um, At the same time, um, it may be helpful to acknowledge that it is also a little weird. Like, particularly if you're brand new... To church, You're allowed to say that out loud because I remember when I first started coming around churches like this one and they would bring somebody up on stage and the way that they would celebrate the fact that this person had become a Christian is by shoving them to the bottom of a horse trough right? And you're like, okay, you know, if you're actually, if you're willing to talk about that, yeah, that's a little weird. Like, hey man, we're so excited. Why don't you come on up here? You're going to get to tell everybody about the wonderful work God has done in your life. And then we're going to plunge you to the bottom of, yes, that is a horse trough. And then we're all going to clap and have a big moment. And, and by the way, just to make it more fun right now, thank you COVID, we're going to broadcast the whole thing on YouTube. So everybody all over the internet gets to share in this. And then we wonder why church attendance is down. You're like, what, what is it that we've lost traction with the culture? And what I want to do for a few minutes today is not by any means apologize for what we're doing. What I want to do is take a few minutes to explain why baptism has been what we sometimes call the rite of initiation um, throughout the 2,000-year history Of the Christian Church, I want to ask the question: Why is it that followers of Christ for two thousand years have celebrated somebody's decision to be a Christian by immersing them in water? Right, and as we ask that, we need to be reminded that it is not baptism that makes us a Christian. Right? It, baptism is an outward confirmation. It's an outward celebration of an inward reality, right It is ultimately our faith in Jesus that makes us a follower of Christ. But what we're going to see as we work our way through Romans chapter 6 is that baptism is this beautiful picture and it's this beautiful embodiment of what it actually means, to be a Christian, which in some ways, when you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, you, you would assume that that is an answer with very uh, a question with very simple answers, and I, I guess it is. But if you look at it culturally, you realize that there are a lot of different understandings of what it means to be Christian right depending on how you grew up a lot of us grew up with a background that says look if you celebrate christmas and easter you got a tree and a bunny you're trying to be a good person and you go to church that's what it means to be a christian right that, that would probably be like the most common cultural understanding of what it means to be a christian i celebrate some holidays i go to church and i'm doing my best to be good person. The more you get around the Bible, you realize that being a Christian is less about kind of external observances, and it's more about an inward posture of our heart, and it's kind of the posture of our heart that we often describe as having faith in Jesus or believing in Jesus, and those are good and true and biblical words. It is our faith that saves us, not our works, to kind of paraphrase the Apostle Paul. So I want to stand on that 2,000-year foundation today. But we also need to be a little aware that sometimes, even when we use words like faith or words like belief, we tend to think about those words in terms of like intellectual assent. In other words, we tend to think about faith and belief in terms of the language of, hey, I know the major truths of the Bible, and I agree with them right? I agree that Jesus is the son of God. I agree that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I agree that Jesus died on the cross. I agree that Jesus rose again. I could kind of, you know, initial next to each one of those on kind of like a little theological checklist. And I think sometimes we assume that that is all God is asking from us, just intellectual assent, just, hey, I can get behind those propositions. And obviously, you can't become a Christian until you get behind those propositions, right? There's no way to consider yourself a follower of Christ, but then reduce Jesus to just a good moral philosopher. It, It just doesn't work, right? There are doctrinal truths that we stand on, but you can be intimately familiar with all of the promises of the Bible. You can be able to cite chapter and verse. You can be a really good theologian and still miss the mark of what scripture is calling us to when it asks us to follow Jesus with our life. Because see, the beautiful thing with baptism is that it reminds us that in some ways the ultimate definition of what it means to be a Christian is to be on this lifelong and this eternal project of allowing every single aspect of our lives to be shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And understand that there's still a lot of words in that definition, but as we work our way through Romans 6, you're going to understand kind of why I wanted to put all of that out there. If you're looking for kind of quick shorthand, to be a Christian means to have your entire life shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? which is about intellectual assent, but then it's about everything else as well. And that is, if you think about it, a fairly stunning claim and a pretty unique way to live your life. To be a Christian means that you want your entire life to be shaped by the death and the resurrection of another person. The, The most significant thing that anybody can ever know about you is what happened to Jesus and that you are choosing to pattern your entire life off what happened to Jesus, right? which is why for 2,000 years, when somebody has made that decision to be a follower of Christ, the church has inevitably found a way to get them to some water and to say, hey, we're going to immerse you in that water. And by the way, when we do that here as a church, we say words that are very similar to the words that have been spoken throughout church history. Right? I will say later today, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, lowered in the image of Christ's death and raised in likeness of his resurrection. There's an identification that's happening. There is somebody coming before his spiritual family and saying, I want you to know that I am choosing to publicly identify myself with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That in a sense, Christ's death on the cross is our death. And in a sense, Christ's resurrection on that first Easter is our resurrection. That to be a Christian means that there has been a fundamental shift in who we are. So much so that Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that the old version of us has gone away and a new version of us has come into existence. And baptism celebrates that. Baptism says old me is gone. Old me is on the way out. New me is coming back up out of the water. Not because there's spiritual power in the water in and of itself, but because there's spiritual power in the gospel. And then the project for us for the rest of our Christian life is to take that statement of identity, that statement of, okay, I'm shaped by the death and resurrection of another and go live it out. Go let it work its way into every aspect of our life, which is why today becomes such a significant day for Sean as he comes forward to get baptized because he's making that statement of identity, and we're celebrating that with him, and we're saying, man, we want to support you and encourage you and walk with you as you live this journey out, but it's also a reminder to the rest of us of what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus, right? Today isn't just you being here to witness what God is doing in somebody else's life and be like, yay, Sean, woo-hoo, Today is also a reminder of what God wants to do in every single one of our lives. Maybe you're here and you have yet to make that decision to follow Jesus. Today is a clear reminder of what God wants to do in your life. But for a lot of us, we're here as followers of Christ. We're here as people who have been baptized. And I want you to think about today kind of as like the equivalent of going to a wedding once you're already married, right? It's like one thing to go to a wedding when you're single, right? There's, like, pros and cons to that. It's exciting. Maybe you'll meet somebody. Like, it's like a de facto college reunion, which is why you justify spending all kinds of money that you don't really have to be there. Because, you know, all of your friends are there, and it's going to be like a little UNC reunion or, like, a little, you know, reunion from wherever you went to school, and you're going to be back with everybody. And who knows? Maybe you will meet somebody. You know, all all kinds of stuff. But there's also a little bit of this, like, (laughs) Yay, so happy for you. I wonder if this is ever going to happen for me kind of moment. Right? You can just be honest about that. You're like, mm-hmm, I can't believe it. <laughs> She's getting married, and I get another dress in my closet that I'm never going to wear. Okay, yay. But so happy to be here, hashtag. Right? Then you get to come to the wedding when you're married, and you're like, oh, Oh, the pressure's off. I've already met somebody. And you have these little meaningful moments. Like there's always moments when my wife, Laura, and I go to somebody else's wedding where like either in the vows they're taking or something the preacher says or whatever, we're like, yeah, honey, that's still how I feel about you, right? There's just kind of this reminder of like, oh, yeah, we made those kind of vows to each other all those years ago, and we're still living them out. That's how I want you to think about baptism today. You're, You're sitting here being reminded of God's plan for your life. You're, you're sitting here being reminded that God truly wants all of our life to be shaped by the gospel, which is a great reminder, but it's the kind of reminder that deserves some explanation and some clarity, which is where Romans 6 is really gonna help us, right? It's, it's gonna help us answer this question what does it actually look like to say that our lives are shaped by the gospel? And we're gonna talk about what it looks like to have our life shaped by Christ's death, and then we're gonna talk about resurrection. So l- let's get started. What does it look like to have our life shaped? By Christ's death. That's clearly on Paul's mind here in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ, not just immersed into water, but immersed into some kind of union with Jesus, immersed into some kind of new relationship with Jesus, some sort of new identity with Jesus, we were baptized, we were identified with, we were immersed into his death, right? In the moment that we become a follower of Christ, to use Paul's language, we die to sin. Uh, That's just sort of the plain reading of what Paul's saying. To be a Christian means to be dead with sin. And you're like, okay, get it. Sounds great. Like the sound of that. But what does he actually mean? Because clearly he does not mean once we become a Christian, we never sin anymore. Right? It just takes like an ounce of self-awareness to realize that's not what he's talking about. Right? He, he's not holding out this promise that we will attain perfection this side of heaven. But he is um, holding out this promise that as Christians, we have made a decisive break with sin. Right, that's maybe the best way to understand what he means by we have died to sin. He means you have made, as a Christian, a decisive break with the penalty, the power, and the pattern of sin, right? Let's just take each one of those really quickly. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I just wanna be the person this morning that reminds you that you have already made a decisive break with the penalty of sin. This is the part that we're most familiar with. This is, in a sense, the heart of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. This is Paul speaking. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, right? This is the thing that you were taught in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And hopefully this is the thing, if you've been to a church at any point in your life, even if it was 10 years ago, you heard some version of this, that the God of the universe is not a God who sweeps sin under the carpet. He's not a God um, who just looks the other way, right? He, he's not a, jo- a God that's like, look, everybody's going to need a couple of mulligans in life, right? There's a golf reference, even though I don't play golf, right? But everybody's going to need a couple do-overs in life. And you know what? God grades on a curve. And as long as you're better than, you know, fill in the blank with that person that you compare yourself against to feel good about yourself morally, as long as you stay better than her, as long as you stay better than him, you're going to be fine. No, I mean this is the reminder that the God of the universe looks at the sin of our lives. Go ahead and make it personal. God looks at your sin, at what you've done and what you have thought and what you have said. And he doesn't excuse it. He condemns it on the wood of the cross. I mean the glory of the gospel is that he condemns it on the wood of the cross by sending his innocent son to come and die the death that we deserve. He, he sends Jesus to die in our place so that the wrath of God can be fully satisfied, can be fully poured out on his innocent son, his innocent divine son, so that he can extend to us mercy, so he can forgive us, so he can give us grace. And I know when I say that, the tendency, especially if you've been around church for a while, is be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that part. I know that part. I know that part. I think the question is whether or not we're really allowing that to shape our lives though. Are we really using that truth to fight back against guilt and shame on a daily basis? Are we preaching that message to ourselves in the moments where we are aware of our sin? Are we preaching a gospel of grace in our souls? Or do we sing a gospel of grace on Sunday but then live out a gospel of self-righteousness Monday through Saturday as we force ourselves through penance after penance and do things to make up for and to excuse and to cancel out and to make it up to God? There is a scandal at the heart of the gospel. If you really understand this idea that, wait a minute, the Son of God paid the penalty for your sin, and now, no matter what you do as a Christian, God is not going to love you any less. There's something dangerous about that. There's something scandalous about that. Right? Because religion wants to use the fear of eternal punishment to control you. Religion wants to say, hey, you better watch yourself because you don't want to go to hell. You better not do that because if you stretch over that line, you could end up separated from God. So just behave yourself. The gospel jumps in and says, hey, look, if you are truly a follower of Jesus, there is nothing you can do that will pluck you out of the hand of God. There is nothing you can do that'll deprive you of an eternity with God. And if we really understand that, that should raise some questions in our mind. You should be like, hey, hang on. Isn't it possible people get a little out of hand with that? I mean, don't we need to be a little careful with that? I mean, people are just gonna go do whatever they want and be like, hey, thank you, Jesus, cross. yay, I'm free, I'm good, Go right? You should be thinking that. Paul's aware of that question. That's why he writes Romans 6, 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He saw that thought coming. That was one of the primary charges his critics leveled against him and against the gospel he preached. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Should we not continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And he comes back with absolutely not, it's genito in the Greek. It's one of Paul's favorite little phrases. He uses it about 14 different times in the New Testament. It's like this little distinct Pauline phrase that he loves to use. It's an emphatic no, right? Um, every time I read that, it reminds me of our uh, now six-year-old Aidan, who about the time he was three or four, um, obviously he had heard the phrase no, not at all, a number of times. I don't know why he had heard that. Obviously, he heard it more from Laura than from me, but whatever. He had heard no, not at all. Aiden couldn't quite remember no, not at all. So when Aiden wanted to use that phrase, he would say, no, no at all. So I'd be like, hey, Aiden, time for bed. No, no at all. And I'd be like, no, for real, we're going to bed. Uh, but he was like, no, no at all. That was his phrase. That was like Aiden's emphatic no. This is Paul's emphatic no. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You don't really understand what it cost Christ to die on the cross if your application of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is like, whoo-hoo, here I go. Let's just have ourselves some fun. Let's just get busy sinning so that God can look so gracious. No, that's not the application. But the application is in those moments where we stumble into sin, in those moments where we find ourselves going back to the place that we never thought we would go again, in the moments where we are so ashamed, in those moments where we're so disgusted with ourselves, in those moments where the voice of condemnation comes and says, what's wrong with you? Why? Why? God must be so disappointed. God must want nothing to do with you. That's when the gospel comes rushing in and says, no, 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 I've made a decisive break with the penalty of sin. God is not disgusted. God is not embarrassed. God is not furious. God welcomes me with arms of grace and arms of mercy because God has already visited all of his wrath on his son. That's the decisive break with the penalty of sin, but notice what's on Paul's mind here. He's thinking penalty, but he's also thinking power, Romans 6, 6, and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Right? One of the things that the New Testament teaches is that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Right? You see that throughout the book of Romans, Jesus says it explicitly, John chapter 8, 34. Um, that doesn't mean that if you are not a Christian, you'll never do anything right. Because non-Christians can do uh, very admirable things, very heroic things, can live a very virtuous life. Right? Sometimes it even feels like you find non-Christians who end up living with far more virtue than Christians, right? So it's not not to say that apart from Christ, you'll never do anything right. But it is to say that apart from life, there's a certain sense of inevitability when it comes to sin, right? There's a certain sense of, I keep going back to the same thing. There are some things in my life that I can't break free of. There are some patterns that keep coming back. Maybe I work real hard to kind of control one area of sin, but while I'm so focused on that, sin pops up over here. It feels like you're playing sort of like a divine moral game of whack-a-mole where you're like, oh, I'm focused on you. Oh, no, shoot, now lust is out of control. Okay, now pride's out of control. No, now it's anger. Now it's, okay, it's all over the place. And you're just perpetually working to kind of beat back sin left and right. And again, Paul's not saying that once we become Christians, we no longer sin. But he is saying once we become Christians, sin no longer holds us in chains of oppression, meaning that it is possible for us to grow and change. Right? It is possible for us to actually walk as Paul says here, in the newness of life. It is possible for us to be transformed and for us to be changed. And that's the thing that we need to be very careful to make sure we're elevating in the church because we love to talk about our sin being forgiven, but then sometimes we stop, like that's the end of the story. Like, hey, don't worry, whatever you, you're gonna be forgiven. That's true. But there's also this whole other aspect of our relationship with Jesus where he's like, oh, you're forgiven, you're eternally forgiven. And guess what? I'm going to go to work in your life tomorrow to make you look more and more like Jesus. I'm going to give you the power to change. Right? And, and not just in terms of breaking the chains of the sins that we are most consciously aware of. Right? Christ can do that. Jesus can free you from the chains of addiction. And that's what some of us need to hear, and that's what some of us need to believe. That your battle with alcohol can be won in the power of Jesus. That it's the power of Jesus that can give you freedom from the sexual sin that's holding you down. That it's the power of Jesus that would be able to put your marriage back together, even though it looks like a total disaster right Right? We need to cling to that power as Christians, right? but we also need to be willing to apply it to the places in, of our lives that are so broken that we've almost come to consider them part of our personality. Right? That, that's why I like to highlight the fact that we've made a decisive break with patterns of sin. It's not just a decisive break with kind of these big, epic struggles with sin, it's also a decisive break with the areas of sin that you've just started to associate with the core of who you are. I'm just always going to be a cynical person. I'm just an angry person. I'm just bitter. I'm just disappointed. I'm just disappointing. However you see that, the gospel wants to remind you of the power to walk in the newness of life. So so I want you to think about when Sean goes under the waters of baptism today, the decisive break that has happened in your life from the penalty, from the power, and from the patterns of sin, that you are in fact a new creation. And some of you have heard the story before, uh, North African Bishop St. Augustine, uh, fourth century guy, one of the early fathers of the church, incredible theologian. But before he became so radically devoted to God, Augustine was a little bit of a party boy. Um, he had a past. There was a lot going on in Augustine's life. And one day he was walking through uh, his hometown and he ran into one of his old girlfriends that he hadn't seen in a really long time. And, you know, she not, you know, kind of runs up to him and is kind of like, where have you, you know, where have you been? Why haven't you called me back? What's going on? And he basically wants nothing to do with her. He's just kind of like, "Mm, don't, don't really see you going to keep moving. Mm, Hello. I don't know, you know, exactly how that went. But ultimately as, as the story goes, she says to him, it's almost like she he th- feels like he, can't, he doesn't recognize her, so he's just like, Augustine, it is I. I'm not sure about the grammar, but it is I. And he looks back at her and he goes, yes, but it is not I anymore. That he was a fundamentally different person. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that it is not I anymore. Right? Now, y- y- that all by itself would be reason to stand and celebrate. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there we go. We've died to the power penalty and patterns of sin. Oh, yeah, and just, you know, be nice. Don't forget to lift Sean up so he can start breathing again. Oh, yeah, that's just kind of a formality. That's the expected end. You know, other than that, it is really weird. Well, actually, there's significance to the resurrection as well. right, Romans 6, 8 through 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Right. The fundamental truth of the Christian faith is that because we are identified with Jesus, because Christ calls us his own, that our souls will live with God in heaven for all eternity. And I get that that is like Christianity 101. But the more difficult life becomes... The more painful things are, the more confusing life in this world becomes, the more we need to sit back every once in a while and just remind ourselves of the incredible hope that comes from knowing that our eternity is secure and knowing that eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. That yes, to be alive to God means participating in his work in our world today. That yes, to be alive to God means the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us day in and day out. To be alive to God means that God has specific work that he wants to do in this world through your life. To be alive to God means you're invited to participate in this incredible adventure with God where he's asking you to be his ambassador to a lost and broken world. It means all of that. I don't want to take anything away from that. But it also means that you know where you're going when you die. And you know that your eternity is one of limitless joy in a place where C.S. Lewis would say, every sad thing comes untrue. You know where you're headed if you're in Christ, and that shapes the way we live our days today, and we are invited to live every single day in union with God, right? Not just coming to church on Sunday to check a religious box, but moment by moment by moment, walking through life, celebrating the fact that the God of the universe knows you, he loves you. He's for you. He's working together, all things for your good. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He knows what he's doing in your life, even when it's brutally difficult. Which is why Paul ends by saying, "So consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." Right now, I, I don't know how you need to resync your life with the truth of the gospel. But I just wonder how many of us are living as though we're dead to God but alive to sin. We're we're living the opposite story of what the gospel speaks over us. And I want to give you just a minute to reflect on how it would look in your life to live into Romans 6.11 this morning. So you two consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus.